open our Bibles to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is considered by many to be the saddest psalm in the Bible. We're not sure who it was written for. It could have been, could have been written for Job. It could have been written for Uzziah. He had leprosy. Could have been written about Jeremiah, who was called the weeping prophet. And it could have been written about Job. We really don't know. But there's not a bright spot in this. It's a total contrast from Psalm 87, which talks about Mount Zion. We were there last week. But Psalm 88 is an important one because it deals with something that you will go through in life, and that's difficulty, heartbreak, sorrow. It begins and ends. It begins on a somber note, and it closes on a somber note. And having said that, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And we know that in Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus is referred to as a man of sorrows, that he could identify with difficult times. We prayed for somebody in the prayer room who's just having a, a difficult time uh, emotionally. They had lost loved ones in the past, and sometimes the memories creep up on you, and they can overwhelm you. And when we study through the Bible, it's important that we understand that here's a whole psalmist dedicated to the reality of not depression, but real heartfelt sorrow. I have such a problem with the churches today that avoid the issue, that tells you that if you have a problem that you're going through a difficult time. I think of David, sometimes it's self-inflicted. Uh, David's sorrow when the Lord was dealing with him, that was, that was self-inflicted. You know, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he said, your, your hand was heavy upon me until he came to a point of repentance. Well, you can have the self-inflicted kind like David, or you can just lose a loved one, totally unexpectedly. One of the guys in the prayer room says a friend of his was uh, crossing the street, got hit by a car, he's all messed up. And that's just, you never know what one given day is going to bring. I guess before we get into reading it, what I would have you get out of it is it's okay to go through those difficult times because... If Jesus did, you know, you, you, you look at the, the Apostle Paul, and he talks about um, uh, him having his hard days. Um, you know, three days in the deep. Uh, um, how many times, uh, five times he got the stripes? And um, often, in, um, often in cold, often in peril, often in hunger. Uh, he says, besides this, I got the, the, the weight of thinking about the church on me all the time. And um, uh, he says, yet in all this, none of these things move me. You know, he, he goes through this list, and when he gets through it all and tells just the reality of, of, of uh, life as a Christian and the sorrow that's going to go with it sometimes, he says such incredible verses. He says, but none of these things move me. He accepts the reality that being a Christian is, is narrow. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be marginalized. You're going to be one of those people. And um, um, you, you got, this is what you need to understand that you signed up for. So Psalm 89 with that uh, joyful, wonderful introduction. <laughs> we dive into a, a, song, a song of reality that deals with, with uh, sorrow. Psalm 88, O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you, and let my prayer come before you, and incline your ear to my, to my cry. At least in the midst of the trial, we have the Lord to go to. And um, when the Lord was, you know, had his... Um, Garden of Gethsemane experience. It means crushing. The Lord was crushed there. And uh, when he was at that place where he did not want to be, he asked his, his closest friends just to pray with him. And he went and prayed three separate times. And um, he didn't get what he wanted. He wanted out. Um, he says, if there's any other way that man can be saved except for me going to that cross, and that's what I pray for. But there was no other way, and he was at least able 
to take and talk to his father about what was about to take place. There's no way this preacher can even begin to fathom the immensity of taking on just my sin and then multiplying that times the world and then multiplying that uh, throughout human history. I can't even begin to wrap my head around that. And uh, why he was called man of sorrows, yet he was able to uh, take it. And uh, even when we go through this difficult time, I don't know how people in the world deal with it. I mean, they go through the same things that, that we do. Who, who, who do they go to? What rock do they have to, to cast their, their, their cares upon? So he says, I'm going through all this, but I'm going to come before you and pray. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength. I remember years ago, the year was 1975, I told the story about Betty. Bastia, when we first met in 1975, well, we all worked at uh, uh, the Outagamie County Health Center. And I happened to be in a geriatric unit at that time. And to this day, there was this man who is, reminds me of this verse, and it's only coming to me now. And it's stuck in my head all these years. He was in his 80s, and he's standing at the end of the hall looking out this window. And he says, he kept saying, why, why? And I, I got closer to him. He was old and he was getting senile, but he, he was talking to God. And he says, why? And what he wanted to do was go home. He said, why am I still here? And he didn't want to be here. He said, why? And I can, I can just, in my mind's eye, I can just see this guy to this day just standing there and asking this question. And we don't know. We have an appointed time. We don't know when it is. Here, he realizes, maybe um, the writer here um, of the sons of Korah is going through this, and he says, I'm like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and you are cut off from your hand. Well, that's certainly not true, because having the uh, insight now of the New Testament, the Bible says there isn't a thought that you don't think that the Lord has already uh, considered. He does know the hairs on your head, and he does know the sparrow that falls. So he counts, uh, we, we read in the Old Testament, the tears, every tear that you dry, ever cried, he knows, he counts them. He knows exactly what, you're, what you are going through. So verse 6, you have laid me in the lowest pit in darkness in the depths, this reminds me of Jeremiah. His title before his name was, was Weeping Prophet. Uh, he never had any good news to share with anybody except judgment. That was his only message. Imagine being called and saying, okay, I'm going to call you into the ministry. Great, Lord, I'm a prophet. What do you want me to do? I want you to pronounce judgment. There's no hope. There's nothing they can do. They've crossed the line. And just tell them they're going to go into captivity for the next 70 years. Anything else? No, they're, they're going to hate you for it. They're going to throw you in a pit, and they're going to leave you there. And there, there's nothing good about the message at all. Zip, nada. And so could be uh, they had Jeremiah in mind. Um, you have afflicted me with, with your waves, Selah. Thing of, thing it is about sorrow, it does produce... Um, um, a maturity and a gratefulness for the Lord when there's nobody else there that really cares. Most, most of us really are very self-centered when it comes to, when it comes right down to it. And the only one who's really not is, is the Lord. And one of the, one of the litmus tests that I like to give as a, a reading for a born-again believer is do they actually care for somebody other than themselves? Have they invested in anything else other than themselves? And if they have, it's a pretty good indicator that they've, they've been born again. Yeah, they're going through it, but they, uh, they're, they're just like the old saying, you know, 
We're beggars who found bread, and now we're just sharing our bread with other beggars. No better, no worse than the next guy. But uh, we know where to go um, when we have a trial, and we can talk to people about the Lord when they're, when they're going through their, what, what I like to recall as the dark night of the soul. All right, verse 9, verse 8, you have put away my acquaintances far from me. Um, some commentators speculate that they're writing about Job because of this verse here. Um, his acquaintances, the only acquaintances he had were his so-called three friends who for 38 chapters trying to persuade Job to come clean with whatever he did that was wrong because of the suffering that he was going through. And they were equating, you did something wrong, Job, that's why you're suffering. That's why all this has happened to you, fess up. And um, he had to put up with that. Nobody else really wanted to have anything to do with him. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up, I can't get out. My eyes waste away because of my affliction. Well, the psalm just gets worse and worse. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hand to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you, Selah? Now, this is also reminiscent of what Job said. So again, um, it could be that they have Job in mind here. And shall your loving kindness be declared from the grave? In other words, if you take me out, then how can I talk about you to people? How can I share? How can I tell about your greatness and your glory? Or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark, in your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But to you I have cried out, O Lord. I like this because... Even though, as far as he's concerned, he's, he's in the dark night of the soul, and uh, he's not being delivered from it, but there's still God. God is still there, and he can at least address the Lord. Judy and I were talking about uh, coming over here tonight. We were, I was thinking, <clears throat> you know, I know if I dig far enough, I could probably go online and find uh, the Jordanian pilot that ISIS took out, and everybody knows what I'm talking about here. And I know if I dig far enough, I could, I could probably find it. I decided I'm not going to go there. But I'll tell you what it made me think of. And that is the certainty of death and the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus is taken by the angels and comforted in Abraham's bosom. But as I stand before you tonight, the rich man is still in torment in those flames. And we were talking about it coming over. And it, it's different because, you know, this guy had took his life. And, um, but with the, with the rich man who was in the flames, he actually asked Abraham to comfort him. And he says, forget about it. It can't be done. We can't go from here to there, and you can't go from here to there. And he says, well, at least send Lazarus back to my family. When, when he uh, reached his end, and I was thinking about this guy that died such a terrible way, and who knows, you know, World War I started over one assassination. And who knows what spark is going to set this whole match off in the Middle East. Any, anything could actually, actually do it. But the reality is, only then, when he was in that place, did he realize that nothing is going to change his eternity. And he's going to be in this situation, and there's nothing he can do about it. And so now, for the first time, he thinks about his brothers. He said, well, you at least send Lazarus back to my family and witness to them. Warn them of this place. And um, he knew, uh, Abraham said, look, they have the law, they have the prophets. In other words, they have this book. Let Let them read the book and believe it or not believe it. And they say, I know my brothers. They won't believe it. But he said, but if you send somebody from the dead, like Lazarus, they'll see the miracle, and then they'll, they'll believe. And um, Abraham says, even if one was sent from the dead, they won't believe. By the way, there was 
a person who was raised from the dead whose name was Lazarus, right? And um, there were those who saw it, and because of that, many people became believers. But others, the scribes and the Pharisees, said we not only have to kill Jesus, but now we're going to have to kill Lazarus again too. And so they weren't converted. They didn't believe in Jesus Christ because of that. So what's your point with all, all this, Dwight? Well, the, the certainty of eternity being lost. And um, not only that, but as described by somebody that Jesus talked about in the New Testament, um, flames that tormented him and um, the reality that maybe somewhere along the line somebody told him about the God of Abraham and he chose not to believe in it. And now that was what you're stuck with and there's nothing you can do with it. So here, at least for the uh, sons of Korah here, yeah, he's going through a very, very difficult time. And there will be times you will be going through difficult times. But this is what you got going for you. You got a God who loves you, who, who has the ability like that to deliver you from your trial. So give me an amen on that. Don't you think he could have taken away Paul's thorn in the flesh just like that? Of course he did. He allowed the messenger of Satan to buffet him. Why? Paul went to heaven. <laughs> he saw heaven. And he says, Paul, we've got to keep you humble. And that's what it literally says. Because of the abundance of revelation, Paul, you've seen so much glory. You've seen my hand. I appeared to you, knocked you off your horse, brought, took, made you blind for three days, had Adonis pray for you, and, you, and uh, you're healed. You've seen revelation, glories, heaven. You've seen it all. So you can pray to have this thorn in the flesh removed, but I'm not going to do it. Father knows best. So you're going to go through the, again, I want to emphasize the point, Jesus was a man of sorrows. It's okay when you're going through it. It isn't that you've lost your faith. It isn't that the Lord has forsaken you. He's taking a step back and see if you're going to trust him anyway and saying that he's working this out somehow to the good. Psalm 88 Not a a word of, the only encouragement you get here is that he had the Lord to take it too. So verse 13, but to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul, and why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. So here he's been going through it for a long time. In the Psalms, we also read and says, until I was afflicted, I went astray. In other words, until he went through a difficult time, uh, he didn't seek the Lord. And it was the affliction that brought him back. I suffer your tears. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your tears have cut me off. Uh, they came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved ones and friends you have put far from me. So he's lonely at the same time. And my acquaintance is in the darkness. So he has really nothing here. His, evidently his, his friends have forsaken him or don't want anything to do with him anymore. But the one thing that we can get from Psalm 88 is he still can pour his heart out uh, to a God he, he believes in. And my study in the commentaries today <clears throat> says this, there's, this is the darkest psalm in, the, in all the psalms that are written. This is the darkest one. But it's there in the word of God. And I'm glad it is. Because, um, you know, everybody always asks a question, hey, how you doing? Right? And what do you say? Fine. <laughs> I mean, you can be going through the worst trial in your life. How you doing? Fine. <laughs> and you know, the best, best, best answer always to give, how, how, how are things going? Better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. That's, that's a good answer. How you doing? Well, better, how, you, how are things going? Well, better than I deserve. I'm glad the Lord doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us, as we sang it tonight, just, his mercies are what? They're new every morning. And what a great thing in, in being a Christian. You get a clean slate every single day. 
You can wake up, and the Lord says, my mercies are new. This is a brand new day. And he says, uh, Paul said, forgetting those things that are behind, I press on. I look ahead. And uh, so Psalm, Psalm 88, a song of affliction. And um, the only good thing that we can glean from it is that there's a God that loves us that still we can pour our, our hearts out to. Psalm 89 is going to get into, um, basically, I would title this the Davidic Covenant. And four times in this psalm, in Psalm 89, um, the word covenant is going to come up. Four times it's going to tell us, I will not lie. That's one thing God cannot do. He cannot lie. Three times in this it says, I have sworn. And in all, all these, especially the I have sworn, I cannot lie, is going to be wrapped around the general theme of Psalm 89, which is the covenant that God made with David, the son of Jesse, the second king of Israel after Saul. And so let's go back to where this covenant is made mention of by his son Solomon. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 8. Verse 15, I'll, just, I'll, I'll give you the background. Let's go to First Kings chapter 8. We have the Ark of the Covenant returning. We have the temple prayer, Solomon's prayer. But um, Solomon speaks before the Shekinah presence of the Lord Verse 10 said, it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. Now, we talked a little bit about this on, on uh, Sunday, only future tense. Here, when the Solomon's temple was dedicated, we have the presence of the Lord going and coming in. So that's what we read in verse 10. The cloud filled the house so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. As long as we're here, let's just talk about the time that it departed. Israel went into idolatry. And as a result, um, um, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. And what we went to on Sunday when we talked about the kingdom age and what would be unique about it. We went to the book of Ezekiel, and I told you from chapter 40 all the way to chapter 48 uh, deals with uh, the temple itself. Chapter uh, 43, 42, and 41 in particular, very, very detailed account. How many windows are going to be there? What size they're going to be? And a lot of detail. I showed you uh, Dr. Tommy Ice's uh, layout of, uh, of uh, different dispensations or different periods of time. But then we got to chapter 43 where, we, where uh, Ezekiel actually beheld the glory of the Lord once again returning and coming from the east and settling in the temple. Well, verse 12, then Solomon spoke, and he says in verse 12, then the Lord said he would dwell in, in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell forever. And the king turned around and blessed the whole congregation of Israel while all the congregation of Israel was standing. And then he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city, from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But notice, but I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. And now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house, but your son, whom shall come from your loins, he shall build the house for my father. 
And so the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father David, and I sit on the throne of Israel. As the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark, which is in the covenant of the Lord, which he made for our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. David said, I want to build you a house, Lord. And he says, no. Um, Nathan said, go for it. And Nathan's on his way home, and the Lord taps him on his shoulder and says, you didn't talk to me about that one. Why don't you go back and talk to David? Tell him, he can't build me a house. But tell him this, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Tell him I'm going to build a house for him. And it's going to last forever and ever and ever. And we call it the Davidic covenant. That the Lord spoke to David through the prophet Nathan and said, it's through you, David, that I'm going to establish a kingdom that's going to last forever and ever and ever. Now, I mentioned this, this covenant, um, and David in particular on, on Sunday, when we get into the millennium, um, in Jeremiah 30, verse 9, this is what it says. Of course, the Lord Jesus will be the one who rules from Jerusalem. But there were other verses, but I'll just quote this one. It's concerning the kingdom. But they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up from them. That's Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Jeremiah wrote these words some 400 years after the death of David so that he could not have been referring to his earthly reign here. David reigned for 40 years. Um, Saul reigned for 40 years. Solomon reigned for 40 years. And then he died. And uh, as he was gathered unto his fathers, that's what it says. But here we have this covenant. And as we look at Psalm 89, all of Psalm 89 is referring to, over and over again, this covenant. So let's go back to Psalm 89 with that much of a background. And let's read the first four verses. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Now here's one of the three times where it says, I have sworn. Now if God can't lie, and God has sworn... I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish for how long? Forever. Now this is important for the times that we're living in today and how it pertains to Israel in particular and the Jewish people. And build up your throne to all generations, Selah. In other words, stop and think about what was just said. And we have... um, I'll be talking a, a little bit more about the dis, different dispensations here. <clears throat> but this psalm is, again, over and over again, going to be referring to the millennial reign for 1,000 years. And we get that from Revelation 20. It says, for 1,000 years, Satan will be bound. And then the Lord will establish Jerusalem. As a center, all the nations will flow into it. Right now, all the nations are gathered together against it. And so we, we're, we're seeing it getting ratched up. Every day it gets, gets ratched up where you think they just, the world can't get any more brutal, any more sinful. And just when you think it can't, it does. And the, and the unthinkable happens. And so <clears throat> through it all, this is sort of the light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, the world is going to go through dark times. But God has a plan, and God has his purposes, and nothing's, again, the main point on on Sunday was nothing is going to change the Lord's kingdom from coming. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, it's going to happen. Nothing's going to stop it. So the the first four verses lay this out, and it says, Selah, please stop and think about it. This covenant that he made with David. Verse 5. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. So the heavens, we read in Psalm 19, verse 1, 
The heavens de- declare the glory of God, and, and the firmament show his handiworks. Um, yeah, I'll let this out of the bag. We're, we're In our staff meeting today, we were thinking about um, uh, uh, our Grand Canyon tour with Russ Miller. Sort of one of the things on a bucket list I've always wanted to do is to go down the Colorado River and uh, and then to do it with, with believers. And and um, it's it's pretty much a for sure thing. Where we, got, we let Calvary people sign up first. Now there's other people that want to get on board. And we only have one bus to be able to do it on. And um, as we were just roundtabling this in our staff meeting this morning, and, uh, we had gotten an email um, from somebody in the community that uh, saw the, uh, I think Rick's name now. <laughs> Year 65, but I'm forgetting. <laughs> Rick Oliver who was here um, for one of my Sundays when I was gone. And the great response we got from Rick. And um, this person took it home and showed it to his kids. And uh, He works at WMI. I won't, I won't embarrass him by telling him his name. It's not, it's not Paul, but he works for Paul at WMI. And um, he just said, man, it would be great just to have a, a creation conference. And so I thought, you know, there's people in the fellowship and they would love to go on this trip. But the fact of the matter is, they can't afford it. And it's, uh, they would love to do it, but they can't do it. So how can we bless the people back here at home? And uh, our thought was, well, why not have a weekend and bring in um, a Jay Seegert um, and um, Rick Oliver. We're going to be with Russ Miller. I mean, uh, ex- ex- except for... Uh, um, the editors and authors of God of Wonders. I mean, we're we're talking some of the the sharpest guys to defend uh, creation, a six day account of creation. So we're going to have a creation weekend, and uh, we'll have uh, if if their schedules are open, we'll have Jay Seeger do the AM, and we'll have Rick Oliver do the PM, and and um, you won't have to be um, feeling. Sad and lonely because you can't go with us to to Arizona and and take it in. So you guys will be able be able to, and I won't feel as guilty for being there. And you have to stay here. <laughs> oh, that's the real reason, huh? Do I? No, if if it works out with their schedules, us Lord willing, you know, Lord willing, that's what we'll we'd like to do. We'll have a Saturday, just creation seminar, and then keep more for Sunday morning. Be a blessing to the to the fellowship here. So the heavens declare the handiworks of God. Guys, my, my favorite witnessing tool is still Seeking and Finding God by Dave Hunt and uh, a copy of, of God of Wonders. I carry him with me wherever I go. And um, you should too. And they're just, they're just great to have around. You never know when you've you got an opportunity just to, to watch one. It's done so well. And the wonders of creation, if they're honest intellectually at all, uh, the probability factors of these things coming into chance by um, time and, and um, circumstance is ridiculous. It's absurd. And anybody who thinks otherwise, I'm, I'm sorry, you're an educated fool. <laughs> I don't know how to say it any other way. And yet you can't get a position in a university today if you take a, a view of, of, of creation and teach it. All right, so that's verse 5. In the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also is in the congregation of the saints. That's you guys sitting out here. You're faithfully following the Lord, faithfully in his word, faithfully pressing on even when you don't feel like it. We're to be instant in season and out of season. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means you keep serving the Lord when you don't feel like it. And you keep doing it when when, uh, things aren't going the best for you. You do it anyway. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Or who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those who are around him. Um, I do have a problem with some of the um, lightheartedness that, um, that's out there today. And, um, you know, the pulpit is no place to be calling the Lord J.C. or the big band up in the sky or stuff like that. You know, he's, 
He's the Lord God, our Savior, and um, that name should be reverenced. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? And so, yeah, I got a problem when people um, don't have that reverence and fear of the Lord. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you, and you rule the raging of the sea. When it rises, when waves rise, you, you still them. Of course, that has to make you think of, of um, <clears throat> the storm on the Sea of Galilee. That is very, very meaningful to me. And uh, the Lord just got up and spoke. And uh, all of a sudden, the storm, there was a perfect peace. And then that great scripture, even the winds and the sea obey him. He speaks to his creation. And they're in submission to his will. He rules the raging of the sea. He says, peace be still, and, the, and, and it is. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who has slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all of its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. These are mountains, Mount Tabor and Hermon. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand and high in, is your right hand. And righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. And, uh, you know, it's just the opposite um, today in our in our political system as we see it slowly deteriorate as we see it slowly getting farther and farther away from defending Israel but blessed are the people who know the joyful sound they walk O Lord in the light of your countenance we call that walking in the spirit or abiding in the Lord just walking and talking with Jesus uh, th- these are the precious moments to me when when you can truly just not be busy serving the Lord, <clears throat> but be still enough to actually walk and talk with the Lord. And sometimes you just got to get away to do that, to a, to a quiet place. The Lord's days were busy, and he took the disciples, and he says he took them to a mountain just to get away, just to get away to a quiet place. And so though in your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor one horn is exalted. And from our shield belongs to the Lord, and our king to the Holy One of Israel. So 6 through 18, and these verses here that we just read, really just describing how great and how awesome the Lord is, and the psalmist is just declaring it. And now... It's going to tie back in um, to God's covenant with David, and that's how he's going to wind it up. It's a long, actually Psalm 89 is a long one. It's 52 verses in length. <clears throat> so verses 19 through 29, Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people, and I have found my servant David. So you see how it shift? It started with David, that I'm going to establish his covenant forever. And then the psalmist just gets sidetracked in these uh, verses up to 18, just talking about how glorious and how great and how mighty God is. And then after establishing the greatness of God, he goes back and he starts talking again about the covenant that he made with David, 19 through uh, 29, let's read it. I have, I have found my servant David. And David was, didn't know that he was being looked after. You know, he's just out taking care of the sheep. With whom my hand shall be established, and my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. David is a very, very special man and how I look forward to meeting him. Um, 
He's known for his military expertise. He would have been a SEAL for sure, Green Bray for sure, a specialist. In, there was nobody like David. Saul is skilled in thousands, but David is tens of thousands, killing giants as a kid. But his strength really was in the Lord. But what I find interesting about David is that people who hung around him became like him. Oh, it took a while. It says everybody who was in distress, everybody who was discontent, and everybody who was in debt came and followed David when he was running from Saul. 400 of them. And that was their reputation. They were in distress, they were discontent, and they were in depth. In debt, I should say. And they hung out with David. And then when you read about them at the end of Second uh, Samuel, now they're called David's mighty men. How one of them took out 800 all by himself. And it just goes through the list of David's mighty men. Who were they when they started hanging with David? In debt, discontent. And uh, they started watching and observing this man, David. And so, of course, he's known as a man after God's own heart. That's what we want to be known as. Not impressed with numbers or positions or titles or none of that stuff. But what should impress any of us is a person who has a close walk with the Lord, and you can see it. And um, I remember when I was being witnessed to, I just wanted what they had. I, I could obviously see they, that they were um, peaceful, content, and they had a joy that I didn't have. And um, I simply wanted what, the, what they had when, when it came right down to it. And so they are, they're looking at David, and they're, and they're watching him. And it reminds me of the disciples watching Jesus pray. Can you imagine that? Just walking with the Lord and watching him pray. And it touched the, the disciples so much. They go, Lord, would you teach us to do that? How, would, how do you do, correspond with your father like that? And they desired it because they saw it in Jesus. Just as the men that followed David desired to be like David, And by the time they had spent that time with David, their lives were changed. Chuck Chuck Smith was like that. And it wasn't so much what Chuck taught. Even though the first couple times that I heard him and of all the Bible teachers that are out there, I thought, well, this is the closest I think I've ever heard anybody of Jesus was giving and speaking and talking about the Father. I think he'd be the closest. That's That's what I thought about Chuck. But then, observing him and how he dealt with issues and his Chuck-isms, well, these are things that guys just caught, not necessarily taught. We just watched. And as we watched, we were impressed and um, how he would handle situations and, and his mannerisms. Nothing really, really ever shook him up, at least as far as I could tell. And um, he, would, he, would, he would be considered in my opinion, like like David here. But anyway, he just, had, he, he just had a good walk with his God, and you can see it. Verse 25, And I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Uh, speaking of uh, rock of my salvation, um, uh, our good friend Teresa Mueller, who put that, to music, you are the rock of my foundation. Da, 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 da. Uh, Bruce and Teresa will be with us for the pastors' conference in April. So there's another little thing that happened this week. The highest of the kings of the earth, my mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm. Here it is, covenant again. Again, again it's going to occur four times in Psalm 89, and here the Lord is saying. It'll stand with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever in his throne as the days of heaven. All right, now again, I want to talk a little bit about dispensationalism as we get here. <clears throat> We're not going to get to 90, so I'm not even going to try. We'll be lucky if we get through 89. <laughs> um, but this is important in the days in which we live, that here we have a prophetic Psalm, 
where God has spoken, he cannot lie. And we find that in the future, during the millennial reign, we're going to have his seed, his people. Well, who is David? Well, he was a Jew. And uh, his father was Jesse. And, then, and his lineage, you can find, it's written in, in Matthew's account, and Luke's account, you have the genealogy. He was the son of David, Jesus. That was his lineage. And so <clears throat> I want you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 9. And I don't think that we can talk enough about, I'll call it a dispensation because we referred to it on Sunday. Let me redefine it. People have different definitions for dispensation and dispensationalism. What I had on the map on Sunday was a layout that Dr. Tommy Ice had, who I have great respect for. But I'll just read a commentary on that. A dispensation is an administration, a system, a management. In theology, a dispensation is the the divine administration of a period of time, a divinely appointed age. What we're reading right here from Psalm 89 is God saying this is what he's going to do for David, and it's going to last forever when he establishes it. Well, I would refer to that as a biblical dispensation. It's going to last for a thousand years. Dispensationalism is a theology system that recognizes these ages as ordained by God. Now, who's speaking here? The Lord said, I have sworn. I have sworn to David, and I'm not going to take that back. It's an everlasting covenant. So it's ordained by God to order the affairs of this world. Dispensationalism has two primary distinctives, and this is very important. Number one, a consistent, literal interpretation of the scriptures. In other words, what it says is what it means. You don't add to it, and you don't subtract from it. Or anybody can make up anything they want to. Especially Bible prophecy. Number two, a distinction between Israel and the church in God's program. Now, what God has lined up for uh, Israel and the seed of David and the covenant that he made with David is um, a distinct and separate one than he has for the church. And that's why I have you in the book of Romans. And we can't go through all of it, but I'm going to, first of all, just touch on those that hold to replacement theology or dominionism. And that is that God is through with Israel, that because they rejected Christ, that the promises now fall upon the church. Uh, Kingdom Now Theology takes it even farther by saying that uh, the church is going to evangelize the world, and when we have evangelized the world, that then Christ will return and establish his kingdom. Well, that's that's not what the scripture says. If you're in Romans 11, let's just read the first two verses. We read, I say then, has God cast away his people? That's a question that Paul asks. He says, certainly not. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, you have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Well, no, there was 7,000 7, more, Elijah, that you don't know about. And the point here is that God has <clears throat> a plan. And um, again, we can't get into all of this, but let's go to, um, oh, to... Uh, the end of it. Let's pick it up at verse 25. So what's God's plan? If I would read all this, it talks about the reason that God allowed Israel to be set aside for a season. That season happens to be 2,000 years. And um, the, my point on, on Sunday was 
they didn't understand. The disciples didn't understand that the kingdom wasn't coming at that time. Remember, I was talking about James and John. They were arguing about position in the kingdom. And um, they didn't get it, nor could they get it. And Acts 1, Lord, are you going to establish the kingdom at this time? And so it was a mystery. Why would God do that? Well, if you read all this carefully, it says, consider the, the goodness and the severity of God. Um, Israel is the root, and we've been grafted in. So what God's plan was that he knew about, all of a sudden in Acts, uh, first, uh, in Acts 10, you have a Gentile getting saved, a guy named Cornelius. It was unbelievable. I mean, uh, the gospel was being preached, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and a Gentile was born again, had the Spirit of God on him. And thus you have the beginning of Gentiles being saved. And now primarily, the early church was all Jewish until Cornelius came along. And now we have 2,000 years where we have a warning here, where we're warned. It says, church, be careful that you don't boast against the root. I got a plan here that's involved for Gentiles. And so um, let's pick it up in verse 25. I quote this often. He says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinions, that this hardening in part has happened to Israel. God allowed it to happen so that we could have 2,000 years where God could reach out even and be a light to the Gentiles, somebody other than Israel. Salvation is for the Jews. But God in his wisdom had a bigger plan that only unfolded as time went on until the times of the Gentiles has come in. Then, what's going to happen? End of a dispensation, church age, the age of grace. Whosoever will call upon the Lord can be saved during this period of time. But that's going to come to an end. And then verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved, and as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Um, let's go down to verse 33 where Paul's trying to wrap his head about around just how glorious this is. And he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who would have ever thunk? Who would have ever thought that he would take his own people, set them aside for 2,000 years, work specifically with the church age, which has its own dispensation. And when the rapture happens, we're out of here, but then the clock begins to tick. God owes Israel seven years, Daniel chapter 9. And when the clock starts to tick, here, uh, Daniel 12 <clears throat> tells us that um, Daniel wanted to know all about all about this. But he says, no, Daniel, you go your way. These things are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And then many will travel to and fro. Knowledge will increase. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. We have more insight now than actually Daniel has because we're, we're at the end of that 2,000-year time, and we're ready for the Lord to come and take us. I'd just as soon be before the study was over. That'd be nice. But, you know, here Paul is summing up 9, 10, and 11. These are the definitive chapters that deal with God's plan for Israel. And, um, and he just says, oh, his judgments are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given, given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Paul was a Jew, and he would give anything for them, but the, he, the, God has his time that he's going to be dealing specifically with him. Let's go back and finish up our chapter. I had a feeling this was going to happen. And uh, we left off in verse 29. If his son forsake my law and does not walk in my judgment, and if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, <clears throat> then I will visit their 
transgression with a rod. In other words, he's going to discipline them. And their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, uh, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my unfaithfulness to fail. If I screwed up with dad, he'd get on me and um, ground me or whatever, you know. But um, I was never not considered part of the family. You know, the old saying, they'd say, son, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. Or it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I got it backwards. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's your dad. He's going to discipline you, but it's only because he loves you. That's what's being said here. If they mess up, if they screw up, yeah, I'll discipline them. But uh, my faithfulness, my covenant, I'm not going to break. I'll put them in captivity for 70 years, and I'll deal with them. Nor uh, Nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn, there's a sworn again. By my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky, Selah. The sign set, sealed, and delivered. God's going to keep his word to, to the nation of Israel. And um, they are going, going to rule and reign. And it looks like, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling over it all, but it looks like this um, going to be including David. <clears throat> But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced uh, the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. Um, As we begin to read the end of this, it almost sounds like it's implying that um, the Lord is is done with them, that they've gotten away. It looks like he's taken away his covenant, but he's already established that he's not. You have broken down the hedges. You have brought in, in strongholds to ruins. All who pass by the, the way plunder him, and he is a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. This would be true as God allowed Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, to come and, and take them into captivity. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. You have not sustained him in battle. You have made uh, his glory cease and cast down thrones to the ground. In Solomon's prayer, he actually prayed this. He said, if, if we mess up, if we forget you and we don't confess our sins and you, you take us captive into another land, but if we remember and we repent, then Lord, remember and bring us back again. That's actually if you go back to First Kings eight and hear the whole prayer, that's what's—that's exactly what happened, and that's why in Daniel chapter nine, the first nineteen verses, is a prayer of repentance by Daniel. Let's finish it up. Uh, verse forty: How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like f- fire? Remember how short my time is, and this is where we're going on Sunday. Because that's what Psalm 90 is all about. Teach us to number our days. And here, it's, here it is. Remember how short my time is. That's always a good one. Um, I actually calculated today, and, and on Sunday we'll be talking about it. Teach us, Lord, to number our days. <clears throat> so I took the time to do it. If, uh, if, if um, we're three score in 1070... These days, people are living longer, but let's just say that I make it to 70. I figured it out today. It's 50 days between now and my birthday, and then uh, then I did that, and I added six years times 365 and added to 50 years, and I figured out I have 2,240 days left. Do the math. Puts it in perspective. What got my attention, though, it says, teach me to number my days. Now, I'm not as old as a couple of people that are having birthdays today, but you know, their numbers are less than mine. That's a pretty good burn, don't you think? I thought it was fair to Midland anyway. What can man live and not see the power? Now, 
What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? No. Lord, where are your, your former loving kindness which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servant, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which the, they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Bottom line on Psalm 89, God made promises and covenants. He says, I've sworn. I can't lie. I've made covenants four times. These are all future tense. What should it leave us with tonight? God's got a plan. And uh, it includes you and I. And so he says, think about it. That you have so many days that life is brief. And the most important thing that can ever happen is that you make your peace with God through God's provision in Jesus Christ. And when you're going through the hard times, like in Psalm 88, and everybody will, when all is said and done, he's still there to call out to. And put your head on his shoulder, and if you need to cry it out, know that that's perfectly biblical and normal, and that Jesus himself was called the man of sorrows. Amen? Let's stand, and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And that uh, as we take in your word tonight, Thank you for King David and this covenant that you made with him and your people Israel. Lord, as we see the stage being set for the world to come against the apple of your eye, we close our Bible study tonight praying for Israel and all all that's heating up in the Middle East. In the meantime, Lord, help us stay the course and be true to your word and just continue to know that your mercies are new every single day. In Jesus' name I pray. All of God's people said, amen.